Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. And I'm Matt. I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with the new replacement list we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is John Huston's 1948 epic adventure character study everything movie um with humphrey bogart tim holt and of course his dad walter houston uh so this movie kind of put me in mind that the top 40 of this list as long as you don't do anything that avant-garde and as long as you don't include people of color sort of make up a like the the classic American movie canon, and by American, I just mean anything that ever had American dollars in it. Like this is the one that I think if you if you went to your you know your mom or dad or your grandpa or grandma or like what are the what are the American movies the they would they would point to these um, and there's some that Treasure of the Sierra Madre which like really stands out to me on that front it just feels like the kind of movie that everybody has seen who makes movies and that no one has ever really been able to replicate um it's it's just so so special on so many different fronts um the first thing that stands out to me is that this is a really great freudian movie uh that humphrey bogart plays plays the id uh, Tim Holt plays the ego, and Walter Houston plays the superego, um, which, yeah, I know, regardless of how one feels about Freud, um, it's a it's an effective way to write characters, I think, when you have that group of three and you have someone who's always on the edge of, of losing control over himself, someone who's always in control and being like, hey, man, have you tried not freaking out? And someone who, like... I think the the more the most interesting way to do this is for the ego to be like kind of weak to not really be strong enough to stand up to either of them to always sort of follow both and that's the way that Tim Holt plays his character in this where he's like not quite not quite strong enough to dissuade Humphrey Bogart from doing terrible things uh but also not um quite firm enough to you know, back away from his own greed and his own uh, cupidity for gold and to really do the right thing as Walter Houston recommends it. Any relation to Steve Holt? I constantly am doing (laughs) this thing where I talk about Tim Holt and raise my arms in the air and go, Tim Holt! Um, So his name was not Tim uh, back when this was a Nepo Babies episode. How does it was that make you feel? <laughs> a little better. I want to be special. Mm. Fewer 
fewer Tims is okay with me. Um, his dad was was Charles Holt, and he was named for his dad. And his dad was a was a big actor in silent westerns. So it's part of how he got into the into the movie biz. But I digress a little bit. So that's one thing about this movie that really that really appeals to me. Um, this is also one of the, and I can I'm going to predict that Matt is more interested slash less guh about this, but this is one of the more interesting movies about what capital does to people. Uh, this is a film, yeah, there's the nod. This is a film um, about three desperate men in different stages of desperation who get a little bit of money and what they get from that money just fundamentally changes how they act and how they believe and how they think. And for the oldest guy among them, for Howard, uh, the Walter Houston character, someone who's made a fortune and lost a fortune before, it's it's less important to him to have that money. Um, he talks about what am I going to do with my share? I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna open up a little hardware store and you know hang out for the rest of my days. And then when Curtin, the Tim Holt character, is talking about it. This is someone who has these very beautiful memories of growing fruit. He wants to like open up like a peach orchard and, you know, use this money as the seed money, literally figuratively to, to plant his own peach orchard and, and sort of make that happen for him and go into business and, and relive these idyllic childhood times. And then Dobbs comes in and he's like, uh, here's the list of things that I am going to buy, and here is the list of services that I am going to get from people. And the three of them were all in a homeless shelter, like, a few months ago together, <laughs> and they were they were just destitute and did not have any any money, they didn't have any prospects, they were Americans stuck in Tampico, Mexico, who had, you know, nothing to go on. And now... With a, without even having the cash in his hand, uh, you can see how Dobbs is is twisted in, in very small and I think for many people very relatable ways that like once I have money, I'm going to buy better clothes. Um, once I have money, I'm going to buy myself nicer things. And well, he gets the money and you can see how over the course of the movie, he becomes increasingly twisted and increasingly... Um, frightening because of what capital does to people about that fear of losing it and the desire to gain it, which are kind of the same thing. So the movie itself, I guess, is worth some explanation. So the idea is that uh, these two men... Um, yeah, go ahead. Before you do this, I suppose a question... This may be as much for the listeners as anything, because I feel like this is one where the the general plot outline will be well understood and or you'll think of something else where you're like, oh, I'm familiar with that. But that may not necessarily be <clears throat> Sierra Madre specifically. I wonder if you think that's true or if I'm, uh, I don't know, being overly general about what what happens in it, because it feels like... A, not like it's a plot archetype, but like it's something that gets played out 
well beyond its own movie. I think it's it's like the model for every adventure movie that's not really about the adventure. So if you've ever like watched one of those movies and you're like, oh, you know what really stands out to me is not like the setting of this. It's like the characters or maybe the dialogue in the film like really stands out to people. Uh, there's a fun there's a fun corollary because the line from this that everybody thinks they know is um, we don't need no stinking batches uh, that Goldhat says the leader of the bandits. And of course he does not say that <laughs> he says, I don't have to show you any stinking batches and whether or not you think that's a better line. Um, it's just, it's sort of, it's sort of funny because that's the, the treasure of the Sierra Madre experience for a lot of people who haven't had it yet is like this slightly twisted one, which doesn't quite get at the, you know, literally what's going on. I think the other thing about it is like, you're watching this movie where it's not just that the heroes are sort of unlikable, difficult people. Um, because we've always had that in movies. It's not like that started in like 1940 or something. Um, you uh, you just have to like literally watch movies from the past <laughs> to see that this is a thing that's been going on as long as we've had them. Uh, but this movie, I think, is so open about the fact that Humphrey Bogart is the worst person in the movie. And for Humphrey Bogart, who was such a giant star at the time um someone who was famous for Casablanca and being married to Lauren Bacall and having you know this this May December relationship with her and being kind of this is before he starts speaking out against Huac too and this is like Bogart in his most sympathetic age probably um, I mean, this is a guy who came up, of course, playing gangsters and playing tough guys, and it, it never really suited him as well as playing like the the heart of gold type. But there's a there's a very strong case to be made that this is this is the best of of Humphrey Bogart, the performer. Um, I don't know that I would say that. I kind of prefer him in The Harder They Fall, but this is this is such a good performance of. Someone who you sympathize with for good reason, um, because we do root for underdogs, and this is a this is a true, not to sound like dodgeball, but this is a true underdog story. Like this is this is somebody who really who really doesn't have anything, and you want him to succeed, and you want him to find gold, and you want him to like be able to buy his things and and whatever. But at the same time, there's such a clear badness in him and it's fun to see that happen outside of the places where we expect to see it in in movie like hollywood movies of this time period so it's not a gangster movie uh it's not a noir it's it's an action adventure adventure movie more or less that happens to have this kind of character who you didn't see in a lot of action adventure movies before that and now of course we are you know overflowing with anti-heroes of one stripe or another who just are not as interesting as as fred c dobbs i mean i think the difference is 
he's loathsome, but you can understand the motivation. Like, it's sympathetic that, like, yes, if I finally have money, I can get these things, and, like, that will make me happy. Like, people understand that. So I think that's the importance of the anti-hero thing, rather than just, like, oh, they're good, but they do bad. It's not like you have to understand the motivation and also understand why it's why it's bad, why it will lead to violence. Yeah, maybe that's the thing that's special about it, because, like, it it is a very relatable thought that if you are someone who doesn't have anything, and, like, he, like the first... Something that I think people don't think about as much as they ought to is, like, it doesn't start with the three of them going to search for gold. Like, there's a good 20-ish minutes or so where Humphrey Bogart and Tim Holt are out of money they are without prospects they get hired by a guy that guy never has any intention to pay them for doing the work that they do they don't get the money from that guy they track down the guy they get into a fist fight in a bar with the guy like there's like a lot that comes before the actual searching for gold finding gold losing your mind stuff. Like one of the things that I think this movie does so well, and I think a lot of other movies, like if you think about like your Marvel movie, there are a lot of similarities between the two of these and that this one is split up into vignettes that like sort of break off and like one crisis sort of follows another, but it follows very smoothly And if you think about Black Panther, like there's a movie that has like scenes across the world as they chase Andy Serkis and, you know, eventually it comes to the comes to a head in Wakanda. Like, obviously, one of these is a lot better than the other, but like that structure of it's not just one fight, but it's this sort of rolling series of problems. Um that are just edited so beautifully into each other. Like that's, that to me is, is one of the legacies of this movie as well. I started laughing, thinking about, I don't know if you just put on the internet, not your internet, like the internet. One of these is obviously better than the other, which one and how disappointed you would be. (laughs) Well, probably, (laughs) probably. So the treasure of this era, Madre, maybe, something to say about this in terms of the plot. So I've gotten through the first 20 minutes um, through <laughs> with the guy. <laughs> yeah. Through some, through some mixture of luck slash robbing the guy they beat up. Um, <laughs> Humphrey Bogart, Tim Holt and, and Walter Houston can get together to, to go to this very, very remote part of Mexico to search for gold. Um, Howard has done this before. Uh, and he, he is like I've said already, like the figure who without him, Dobbs and Curtin would be dead. Like the two of them would not make it without him. And he's also the one who, as they start to find gold, um, is talking about, you know, weighing it, keeping up with it every time out so that they have a good record. Um, and at first he and Curtin are in favor of keeping the gold in one lump sum. And that way, you know, you just like, you keep it in like one big bag, like one big bag, go ahead. 
are you thinking of something? <clears throat> no, you're you got real muffled in the middle of that, and I was that was the face. Oh, that's bad. It's it's better now. I don't know what okay. happened. That's weird. <laughs> um, hopefully, people heard that. So, like in one in large one large bag to keep all the gold. And Curtin's like, yeah, that's a good idea. It's not like we can spend this anyway. There's nowhere for us to go with it. And then Dobbs is like, no, I want to make sure that each person is responsible for his own part. I want to have my own part. And then that convinces Curtin. And then there's this increased paranoia as all three of them start to get like really worried and wary about where the bag is um, for the other men. Uh, there's this great scene where Curtin accidentally stumbles across this um, this rock that's got a Gila monster underneath it, but it's also the place where Dobbs's bag is, and Dobbs accuses him of like spying on him, and then Curtin is like, "You know what? You're such a big man. There's a Gila monster under there, but maybe you're right. Maybe I just know where your money is, and you know, I'm I'm trying to get you to." show me where the gold is but you go ahead you show me you're a brave tough guy and and you know get your your bag out of there but if i'm right and there's a gila monster then you're a coward and there is a gila monster under there and it's but you don't know like it's a it's a terrific scene because it it just shows how far dobbs has come and like a very short amount of time for us but even then it transitions to Bruce Bennett showing up, uh, playing this Texan named Cody, who is also trying to strike at Rich, who has his own measure of desperation. There are subplots in here about the bandits. There are subplots in here about the locals who are in fear of the bandits, but also living under this repressive regime with this police military, uh, which basically functions as the judicial system where you can obviously see the flaws in that this it's a busy movie it's a busy movie it's a full movie there's a lot of story that goes into it and one of the things that makes it makes it so special is is again how well it's written how well it's put together and the sense that all of this kind of folds on top of itself rather than gets flung at you which which is which is no fun there's no flinging here. It's it's structurally so special. Other things to talk about with this one before we talk about the the theme for this this episode. I'm just real excited for the theme. Um, did I don't actually know this? <clears throat> Not to get you on an Oscar spiel. Did Ooh. did Humphrey win? <laughs> No, so he he did not win for this. This was the year of Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. Mm. So yeah, there's a <laughs> there's a weird a weird year for you. Um, so we're gonna do a buzzsaw. Yeah, well, it it's interesting because this was kind of the buzzsaw. Um, so Hamlet won, and best director went to John Huston as it should have because this thing is directed so so well um even even today you watch this and you think this has to be one of the couple hundred greatest directorial feats of all time like the way he fills that frame is is genuinely like what john ford would do it's it's really special so john houston wins he wins for screenplay um walter houston 
wins Best Supporting Actor, so he had never won an Oscar before. Um, and his son gave him the role of a lifetime, basically. He's like, Dad, you need to take out your false teeth and grow this patchy, scruffy beard and pretend you know Spanish. And it ended up being like this this Lifetime Achievement Award for Houston, who, of course, was a star in Hollywood for decades before this. And yeah, it's it's funny. It's it's an award that should have been Bogart's and eventually the African Queen, which we have talked about, <laughs> is the one where people people like him playing again, the sort of uh wacky Canadian with a heart of gold. Um because that's the phase we were in with Bogart. Those are the things that stood out for people more. Um rather than I'm Fred C. Dobbs and I'm evil. Should Bogart have played more wacky Canadians? I think if he had lived longer, the the room for wacky Canadians would have been much greater. There would have been a much longer runway for those. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think I would have watched more. I'm just looking. We have more Humphrey coming up down in a few episodes. I see. So I'm sure we'll do. We what's him. the what's the <clears throat> next Humphrey we have? Don't we? Oh, uh, Maltese Falcons yeah. coming up. So another again, another Bogart Houston, yeah. um, Houston effort. So we will we will get into that later on. So maybe you're right. I don't want to belabor the good writing and good performances too too much here. We'll have this duo again. Um, yeah, I don't think anything else though. I'm I'm excited for the theme. So. <laughs> All right, well, let's let's do the theme because this is grandiose, even by the standards I usually try to hold myself to. So the theme for The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is the Monroe Doctrine. So Matt will get to choose which movie best suits that theme based on the arguments presented, and all movies head to their subtitles replacement list. Remember that the goal is not to choose the work that's best or most important, but to choose the one that best suits the theme. So our two options are both further on in history. They are both 80s-style Monroe Doctrine movies. The reason that this one that this one qualifies is because it is not entirely set, or let's put it this way, it's not entirely shot in Mexico. It is one of the first Hollywood movies to to go to Mexico to like shoot it. Um, so there's, there are some funny stories in here about how John Houston basically fools the studio into like thinking that he's going to make this quickie Western and he's just going to, to Mexico to like do some shots and then he'll come back. And it turns out he was trying to film as much of this thing as far away from the studio as he could get away with. <laughs> like he's sending, he's sending back the dailies. And of course they hate it because it's, it's like good and not like the cute little B Western that they were hoping for. So like, that's kind of entertaining, but this is, I mean, the movie itself is entirely set in Mexico. Um, there are lawn sections set in Tampico, and then there's the sort of wilderness area somewhere near Durango. Uh, and this this is compelling to me because it's it's after the good neighbor policy, which of course is for those of us who 
have not been in our U.S. history classes in, in a while is is set up by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 30s to try to create better, warmer, diplomatic, and, and sort of like cultural relationships uh, between the United States and Latin America, which of course was important because in the time between the World Wars and then of course during World War II, there, there was the concern that the Germans would uh, infiltrate Mexico or infiltrate Brazil or Argentina and use those places as springboards to attack America. Um, of course, we all remember the, the Zimmerman telegram from, from the First World War, uh, where people were actively afraid that there was going to be an invasion of the United States from, from Mexico. So like, part of, part of the good neighbor policy was like economic and political and all that. But a lot of the good neighbor policy is also built up through movies and like the propaganda that movies can be. So if you've ever thought about like, what is Carmen Miranda doing in movies? Well, she's in movies in America because of the good neighbor policy to make people, um, feel like, oh, look how fun Brazil is. You know, this is such an exciting, exciting person or place. Uh, if you have ever thought about flying down to Rio or down Argentine Way, or if you have ever wondered why there are not one but two Disney movies from the 40s about Donald Duck making friends with birds with accents, um, that's why. If you have thought about why only angels have wings, which is the home of the killer condors, which we have talked about on this show before. Um, that's, that's kind of a good neighbor policy adjacent move. Is that the death metal version? Uh, I guess that's the Commodores. Never mind. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. I, that was, that uh, was close. I just, I, just <laughs> uh, I don't know. Tripped over my own feet there, I guess. Anyway, continue. That's okay. So the, that's, I mean, all of those are like sort of adjacent to our good neighbor policy. Some of them are like actively called for, like part of it's like the government saying, hey, um, Walt Disney, any way we can get you to have Goofy mess around with um, gauchos. And of course they said yes, and, and that's that's history for you. But this one is, of course, after World War II. It's after FDR. Um it's it's about Mexico less is like here are our friends and everybody's just part of a big happy Western Hemisphere family. And it's more about this kind of invasion of gringos, <laughs> which I think the film is is fairly direct about. Um I mean no, you just sort of have to think about these white guys who are making a small fortune for themselves in Mexico, avoiding the Mexican government at all cost, um, refusing to have surveyors or American companies. I mean, they're afraid of American oil companies coming in much more than they are the Mexican government. Um, meanwhile, the Mexican peasants there around are living on subsistence and hoping the bandits don't come to their town. And, you know, if the bandits do come to their town, then they have to hope that they're uh, government terrorist military police uh, will come deal with the bandits. Like there's there's commentary in here if you're willing to to search for it. I think that this is a story about Americans taking from Latin America and saying we're allowed to do this. Also, by <laughs> like that's 
that's what Fred C. Dobbs is very much after in this film. Uh, and the good neighbor in this is is Howard, who helps out a a Mexican child who like almost drowned, and then the people of the town basically adopt him, which is weird and kind of like the movie is sweeter about it than I think than I think it sounds like it, it's a better intention than it actually comes off as. But that's the that's the way the movie looks at it is there is this more Monroe doctrine like we're America, we own the Western Hemisphere, shut up, which is basically what John Quincy Adams wrote back in the 1820s. So that's that's where that's where I'm going with this. That's the the way I want to look at this back in the time period where we were no longer scared of fascists coming to South America and changing changing those democratic governments we we now allowed the fascists to come to south america and then encourage them to you know make fascist governments because they were our fascists maybe we're the fascists <laughs> are we the baddies yeah. um i don't know monroe doctrine is still basically what we what we do so oh i think the monroe doctrine and this this leads us into our our films here which are both from the 1980s like i think i think the fact that we sorry i said that i said that as more of like a hanging political statement but i meant that as like i think the movies are still doing it oh yeah yeah and and like the 80s are are a hot spot for these movies about the monroe doctrine uh because of all of the (laughs) all of the the strife that Americans were causing in Latin America during the seventies and eighties. Like I could have picked other ones. Um, It would have been just as easy for me to have thrown Salvador in here. I don't like Salvador, but there's, there's no question um, that it's, that it's very open about all of the the bad stuff that the American government did in in Central America during the during the 70s and 80s. The ones that I do have are one of them is more about the American government like it based on a true story the Monroe doctrine and that's Costa Gavras's missing from 1982. And then the other one is about this more like metaphorical approach to the Monroe Doctrine, um, something where America and Americans can believe that they are like, you know, if not good neighbors, then big brothers, like sort of casually salvific. And and that's the Mosquito Coast from 1986 by Peter Weir. So we are going to take them in that order. Um before we start, I'm curious if you've seen either one of these. Haven't even heard of them. Outstanding. So Missing is not Costa Gavras's first go-through with the whole revolutionary filmmaking thing. He is probably, I don't know, I'm going to say something really hyperbolic here, but like he's got to be one of the most important leftist filmmakers since Sergei Eisenstein. Like, this is a person who has been working really hard throughout the 60s, 70s, and now into the 80s to make this incredibly aggressive, incisive, incriminating, 
left-wing filmmaking. Um, so he becomes prominent with Z or Z, which is about uh, the Greek fascists and them taking over the country and, and how they were eventually kind of like, I think deposed is the wrong word, but like how people fought against the, the Greek government. And then there's a movie like State of Siege, which is um, about Uruguay and about um, the way that Uruguay has sort of been taken over by fascist governments. Again, both sort of based on true stories here. And then Missing is about the um, the coup in Chile in 1973. So this is the story of when Salvador Allende was... Uh, deposed by Augusto Pinochet. And of course, Allende was a left-wing, democratically elected figure, and Pinochet was a fascist military officer who was supported by the United States. And voila, that's what happened. Short version again for those of us who haven't been in world history for a while. Missing is, like I said, based on a true story about Americans which I think is interesting. Like I know that I know that there's, there's always that critique of films about like, Oh, well, why are we so interested in the Americans when the Chileans were the people who were suffering? Um, But the reason I think it's especially powerful is because it's about American arrogance, even from people who think of themselves as basically benign figures. So the the story um, the story is is about Charles Horman who is this the way the movie describes him is like I think he was maybe a more serious journalist or at least wanted to be a more serious journalist than the movie presents him has um, it presents him and his wife uh, who's played by Sissy Spacek in the movie as these friendly, hippy-dippy, woo-woo-type American expats living in Chile with their American expat friends and, you know, how cool to be out of America and away from all the Vietnam stuff, man. Like, it's it's basically, again, I think it's probably fairer to think of Horman as a more serious journalist, but the, the film depicts him as, like, honestly a pretty easygoing, friendly guy. Um, and then the coup happens and his wife is like, so where is my husband? And we can guess where her husband is. He has been disappeared and executed by the Chilean government, which of course was supported by the American government. But of course his wife doesn't know that. And then eventually, um, her father-in-law, Ed, played by Jack Lemon, in like not like a late career, but later career role, um, comes down from New York, and it turns out that Ed is like a classic Chamber of Commerce kind of guy, super respectable businessman, um, very professional, little stern, not much of a sense of humor. Um, I mean, the way he looks at it is like, my son probably got himself into some situation he shouldn't have, and now I've got to come down here and bail him out of it. But of course, that's not really what happened. His son was reporting on 
the coup that was happening, and it's not like, I don't know, in the sense that no one should have been watching, <laughs> I think is one way to look at it. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of what I think is presented as like doing the right thing. You know, like if someone, if an American disappears in another country, then what do you do? You go to the consulate, um, you ask around and see what uh, the other Americans in the country know about this person. What do their friends know? Um, you ask around to news services and, and like everybody's doing the right thing. But the basic difference between um, Ed and Beth is that Beth is like something is ter- something terrible's happened to to Charlie, and the reason I think that is because there's been an American sponsored coup in Chile, and it takes that a long time to get to this point of like, are we the baddies? Which is which is the interesting thing um, about this film is this transformation that happens in the Jack Lemmon character as he becomes increasingly distrustful of the American system. You're muffled again. That's so strange to me. Where, where are your hands? Here. Yeah, now you're good. Oh, word. I'll stop touching the computer. Anyway. Um, <laughs> that's, that's fun. <laughs> general thoughts so far about, about missing. Um, I don't know. It sounds like the kind of thing that I'm a mark for oh yeah yeah no this is um this is an outstanding this is an outstandingly catnip movie for for people like us i was about to say that was that was my biggest thought as you were talking through it makes sense but uh i think i don't know i'll be curious the like angle they all take on the doctrine not explicitly necessarily though this one is um but this one is just so clearly leftist. Um, I'm, I'm interested in how they all play up that and not just like being about the doctrine. Yeah, this is a movie where I think, um, I think the interesting thing about it is, like I said, the Jack Lemmon character who doesn't give a lot of thought as an, as again, like a well-off American. Um, he doesn't give a lot of thought to this idea that, part of the reason his country is so powerful and profitable is because they like bend the shape of the Western hemisphere into what shape they want it bent into. And it's not something that he has had to consider before. It's never been thrown in his face before. Um, and if you told him before his son disappeared that something like that was happening, he would probably think it was all for the best. Um, again, there's a lot in this movie that interests me about the presentation of the people who Charlie and Beth hang out with is what annoys him more than, um, more than their politics or more than the jobs they do or don't have. Like it's, it's that very classic, like conservative way of looking at the world, which is skin deep judging a book by its cover because that's because things are like that. What's kind of skin deep. I said literally skin deep. (laughs) Yeah, literally like and it's interesting cuz if you are if you're Ed Horman, you don't have to look much more than skin deep for people. Um you don't have to 
to really analyze all that deeply because you started off successful and you've continued that success and you've, you haven't had to, to really think that hard about it. Uh, but the film gets him to this point where at the end of it, he almost gets it. Um, he finally manages to get the body of his son recovered. Um, and he's getting told that they'll get it back to him eventually, that there's going to be some cost to him to transport his son, who again, the U.S. government helped to kill, um, back to back to the States. And eventually he goes up to one of the smarmy government people he's been working with who have been snowing him throughout this entire process and says, I'm just glad we live in a country where people like you can be put in jail. And I love that line because he still doesn't get it. It's so fascinating that like, and, and Lemon delivers it so well too. There's so much righteous anger behind it. And it appeals to our own desire to have that justice done. I think, um, again, even if it's, it's not, um, you know, lefty online people like ourselves who got onto Twitter and got handed our copy of the communist manifesto and a subscription to, to, to Monday night raw. Is that the tweet? No, I don't know this tweet. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'll have to send it to you afterwards. It's like, welcome to Twitter. Here's your copy of the Communist Manifesto. And this is subscription to Monday Night Raw for some reason. <laughs> All right. I, I, I think I'm a real one then because I had those way before I got on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, like, But like, that's, that's the kind of people who it appeals to now. But back then, I think it appealed... It, this this was nominated for Best Picture, and like it was an Oscar movie. Um, it it was appealing to people who I think really looked at the situation and said like people like this should go to jail. And yet, who exactly is going to go to jail in the United States for helping to overthrow the government of Chile? Like, what an incredibly naive thing to say. They can literally kill your son, and you like you you still believe that there is like this idea of american justice that genuinely fights for people and is is concerned about their welfare and takes care of their own citizens abroad um the monroe doctrine is interesting in this movie because it's not really about americans it's about america and and the government of the united states and the interests of the united states and the economy of the united states but the people of the United States are not really engaged in the Monroe Doctrine until they are victimized by it, as Charlie is, and Beth is to some extent, or forced to engage with it, as, as Ed is forced to engage with it. Other thoughts about, about missing? Anything, anything more on this? Any, any interest in exploring the films of Costa Gavras? I mean, yes who I had no familiarity with before this. So <clears throat> consider me intrigued. I like, <coughs> excuse me. I like what you said at the end there. The uh, 
I don't know. I think any movie like explicitly about the Monroe Doctrine can't really be about the American people because the ignorance is the point. Um, and so when it comes crashing down on you in a very singular moment like that, that to me is more powerful than if it was like, how are the everyday people engaging with? They're not. Um, so, yeah, that line delivery, too, that stood out to me. Even you just uh, mentioning it. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested. I did find the tweet, too. Welcome to Twitter. Here's your copy of the Communist Manifesto and a season pass to Monday Night Raw for some reason. Yeah, season pass. That was it. <laughs> I, uh, man, I was ahead of the curve. It's It's just... <laughs> It's so spot on for a particular subset of Twitter users. And I don't know. I feel like everything I've ever known about wrestling comes not from having been a child of the 90s, but just being on Twitter on like nights. Hey, you started using Mark and that's that's wrestling terminology there, right there. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's the they've gotten to me, I think is mm-hmm. the phrase to use here. So that's that's missing a movie which um, got a Criterion release uh, a couple years ago, which I think is is well earned, obviously, but also kind of useful because it's part of this 1982 class of movies that when you think 1982, you think E.T., you think Tootsie. Some people think the verdict for some reason Speaking of Marx, people who like Sidney Lumet are Marx. This is two weeks in a row we've had some anti-Sidney Lumet talk on here. Um, also, the uh, the wrestling terminology would not be they got you, but that they worked you. So I'm just here mm, to mm-hmm. continue your education. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's the it's the year of um, it's the year of Gandhi, of course. Which I think I'm like the last person on the planet who still likes Gandhi. It's the year of Sophie's Choice, which we've talked about. There are a lot of movies that I think have stood out more in the popular imagination than missing. And that's a shame because this is arguably the best of the bunch. Um, I know I've made it seem a little bit pat in some ways, uh, but there really is this wonderful performance and, and Costa Gavras gets great performances out of people. And part of the secret is like, he gets so many good actors in his movies, but the the connection this this frayed connection that gets shored up bit by bit little by little between jack lemon and sissy spacek is really what makes this movie tick um and that's how it like gains the power to actually make this very strong commentary about american interventionism and foreign policy and of course everybody's favorite the monroe doctrine the other film that we are going to hit here, The Mosquito Coast um, by Peter Weir, I think fits pretty neatly into my Peter Weir thing, which is either I love this movie, Peter Weir, it is one of my favorite movies and I would do anything for you, or Peter Weir, why did you make this movie? I do not like it at all. What happened to you, man? So like, this is one of the ones, <laughs> obviously, that I really like. Um, of course, this is the guy behind Witness that we've talked about on here before. This is the year after Witness, uh, another Harrison Ford, um, another Harrison Ford collaboration for him. 
this is the person who did Master and Commander, which is another one of those things that um, you have to you have to know about in order to be on Twitter. Um, this is the the guy who did Picnic at Hanging Rock, which for a while was probably one of my four or five favorite movies. Um, and the Mosquito Coast is one I, I kind of had a hard time picking up, uh, kind of had a hard time getting to because it's just not as available. It wasn't a big hit. Um, it, it's sort of like the treasure of the Sierra Madre and that Harrison Ford, who everybody wants to like at this particular stage of his career, is playing this really difficult, somewhat unlikable person. And that's that's a really tough thing for audiences to go deal with, I think, at this particular moment in time. So this film is about Harrison Ford as Ali Fox, who is this Harvard dropout, um, who is described by his son, played by River Phoenix, uh, who also sort of like narrates here and there as like this truly brilliant inventor. Uh, one of the first things we see him do in the movie is like, make this machine that turns things into ice or that can make ice, but does it like through fire. And it's very magical and fun in a way. <laughs> and I don't think anyone needs to know why it would actually work. Um, but he brings it to this guy employing him who knows that Allie can like engineer something to like keep his asparagus cold. And Allie is like, Hey man, I made you this scale model. It makes ice. And the guy's like, I have rotting asparagus and I really did not ask for this thing. I really asked you for a way to keep it cold. <laughs> I did not ask you to invent this thing, whatever it is. So this is sort of the last straw for Allie who has been ranting and railing in this very, again, here's Twitter again, but about how no one wants to work anymore and how Americans are losing their edge. Uh, there is a scene in the beginning of the film in which a pre-Seinfeld Jason Alexander is working at a hardware store and he sees Harrison Ford comes in and he like tries to hide behind the counter because he just knows that Harrison Ford is going to yell at him about something stupid. And in this case, it's because it's because he gets handed a Japanese made product and not an American made product or something like that's the, this is the Ali Fox thing. It's um I've written about this before, but basically the, the thing I love about this so much is that this is a quintessential Massachusetts guy. Like this is a classic Western Massachusetts libertarian, fix it yourself, make it yourself. Um, with all of those nationalist impulses, no one works hard enough, no one works as hard as me, all of that, all of that jazz. So basically one night he's like, well, I'm tired of this. We're going to move the whole family, which is me, my wife, Helen Mirren, who he calls mother. Um, yeah, it's that kind of relationship. Um, River Phoenix, another son, and two girl twins. And they just... They just go to Belize and they're heading to this place where they plan on like living um, outside of society, but making their new society. And like it actually kind of goes well for a while. Like there's some Swiss family Robinson to it. Um, 
they he buys a town from from a guy and sets up his giant ice making machine um and you know brings better farming techniques and and brings material to to build better shelters and like it's all well and good basically just like eccentric american comes to one village in belize (laughs) basically basically makes things a little bit better um and then of course the trouble starts when Allie decides that the natives are not awed enough by the ice like he's really going for the full aureliano buendis experience here um he really wants go ahead it sounds like he just needed to I don't know, hook up with Jimmy Buffett and do Margaritaville. I mean, he probably would have been happier that way. Um, I think I think the ethos of Pink Houses, of course, is is a strong one in the the making of this character. Like it's a it's a movie where you're sort of like disgusted by this guy, and at the same time, you're like, he really believes it. Like it's not it's not a posture this idea that no one's working hard enough that you can always do better. And there is a long stretch of the movie where, uh, of course, former carpenter Harrison Ford spends a lot of time with his tools and a lot of time setting, um, setting stuff up and like making a, a more efficient, cleaner, safer town. Again, no one, no one asked him to, and it's not like everyone was dead or something before this, like things were fine. Um, but like on the scale of white people invade, invade Belize, this has to be a pretty low grade offense. Um, you could make the argument um, that what's happening with the other local white family um the the minister the the missionary reverend spellgood played by andre gregory at, at maybe his most andre gregoryist um you could probably make the the case that he is the more invasive american um the more dangerous american than than ally is but the the trouble starts when ally is like like i said like not sufficiently white godded enough for having made ice um, so he's like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to find people who have never seen white people before, and we're going to bring them the ice. And I want them to like, just poop their pants over the fact that ice exists. And two things happen when he does that. The first is that just because they haven't seen white people before, doesn't mean they haven't seen people with guns before. And there are people hanging out at this indigenous village with guns. And the second thing they figure out is that it's very hard to carry ice through the jungle because the ice melts by the time they get there. So like, (laughs) like half of this is very funny and half of this is also like kind of frightening. Um, That's the, that's like the first half of the mosquito coast more or less. Um, What do you make of it so far? Just like it had the potential to be a great slapstick. Okay, the slapstick in this comes when Harrison Ford 
Um, and, and River Phoenix trapped the three militants or gangsters or whatever they are in the ice machine, which of course is like skyscraper height. It's huge. It's enormous. And like they trap them in there and Harrison Ford is so sure that like he won't actually kill them because they'll stop like trying to get out of there as this thing kind of explodes around them. And of course what they do instead is they try to shoot their way out and the biggest explosion in the history of Latin America takes place and all of this like many different colors of flame just shoot out of everything and it's very horrifying and very weird and like he's like yeah we can't live here anymore because of how much ammonia is now in the water and I'm like how much of this jungle did you kill my dude <laughs> in this effort to make ice and that I think is is kind of the the brilliant thing about this movie is that it's the Monroe doctrine for people who think that America is really trying their best. Like that the Monroe doctrine is, is not, you know, this incredibly sharp sword um, or this incredibly heavy stick to hit things with, um, but that it really is about kind of this Peace Corps mentality of we're going to go abroad and we're going to help people and we're going to make things better for everybody and everyone will be so grateful and won't it be great when they just think we are white gods. Um, and that's that's sort of what this, this film is about, is about this, again, he makes a, he being Alley makes the scale model of his ice machine. Um, it's a scale model for what the Monroe Doctrine looks like in the 80s. Uh, where we are supposed to, we're supposed to go make things better and make the world safe for democracy and all of those other platitudes uh, in Central America. When, of course, what we are really doing is destroying the environment, feeding our egos, and endangering our own people. Because when I said it was Swiss Family Robinson adjacent, I do mean that there's a hurricane that obliterates the interesting little shelter they've built. Um, unlike the Swiss family Robinson, the local guy who has become their friend is like, Hey man, if you live here, the rain will come and you and your family will die. And Harrison Ford is like, screw you, man. We live here now. Like that's the, the general, <laughs> the general thrust of this. Um, like I said, not a huge success at the time. This is not like an Oscar movie. Um, even though I can think of lots of things from the 1986 version of the Oscars that I would rather have replaced by the Mosquito Coast. Um, I think it's been remade fairly recently as like an Apple TV series or stuff. So if people know that, that's probably where they know it from. Um, but I do, I do think this movie is underseen to some extent, I do think this movie is also kind of misunderstood a little bit because the most common correlation you see with it is Fitzcarraldo, which is the Werner Herzog movie where it's about the, the guy who wants to bring an opera to the Amazon, like an opera house to the Amazon. 
and one way to get his boat to where it needs to be is to lift it over a hill like to use physics to like police system a large boat over a hill and then Werner Herzog was like well the way we're going to show this in the movie is to make a pulley system and then lift this large boat over the hill because it would not be be a Werner Herzog movie from the 80s without a little bit of you did what exactly so that's the that's the thing that this gets compared to so much um you know this guy with this crazy dream who goes into the jungle and and does crazy stuff but where I think that comparison just really falls short is that in Fitzcarraldo it's about I this crazy guy would like to have an opera house in like Amazonian Brazil or wherever the heck it is um I would like to have my opera house in the middle of the jungle where who who needs this or wants this besides me um Whereas in this film, I really think that Allie is this paragon of the American who wants to to go to a more impoverished place that he thinks he's supposed to fix um, and ends up, of course, making things worse, bringing conflict, bringing violence, bringing environmental degradation, all sorts of other things, which, of course, do not make it better um, for himself, his family, or the people who actually live in those places. So that's the that's the overall look at the Mosquito Coast, which, again, is like the Monroe Doctrine if you wanted to make it an action figure, as opposed to doing like a, a journalistic approach to... Um, to real events and, and real calamities. I'm now interested in your Massachusetts guy canon. Ooh. (laughs) Like, I know this one is Western Massachusetts. You have more to play with, but the Massachusetts guy canon. There you go. That's your next thing piece. (laughs) You know, I, googled it just to see if something would come up and it says including results for massachusetts guy canon with two n's <laughs> so apparently in massachusetts there's there's um there's some guy who either is the canon or who puts himself in the canon or something like that um that 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 tracks all right, maybe the Dessel just has to be the Massachusetts guy canon. I was gonna do some. I was thinking about doing something else, but I'm gonna write that down instead. Nah, Massachusetts uh, guy canon. Yeah, I said, well, you'll be fine because you've seen so much. But like digging beyond the Boston of it all, that'll be the fun part. I was about to say there will be some. There will be some Boston stuff. Yeah. Um. But I will I will endeavor to find some weirdo not Boston stuff. Yeah. Um, who is the I'm trying to decide who the most Massachusetts guy in the history of our country is, and I feel like it's probably Henry David Thoreau. Libertarian weirdo who's like yeah. look at all of this cool stuff I did. I nailed every nail in straight and true. And then when they find the cabin, it's like this guy 
was terrible at hammering nails. He was just really bad at it. And also, like, ten feet from his his mom. (laughs) Yes, just like, I made this in the backyard. (laughs) And also, I'm still eating lunch with Ralph Waldo Emerson every day. But other than that, man. And also, mother does my laundry, but, you know, deliberately, deliberately. All right. Massachusetts guy cannon. (laughs) (laughs) To a Massachusetts guy cannon, and I will report back to... To all the good yeah. people i like i want to do it with the music but i don't know if i have any massachusetts bands in this run it's it's harder to do well, all right ready for spiel you know where you're going all right uh not quite but do the spiel oh we'll see where it goes okay it's one of those so this week uh the original film is the treasure of the sierra madre which of course takes place in mexico largely shot in mexico and is among all the other things that it's about, whether those are intellectual or just sort of like heart racing, um, gut clenching kind of things, is is about America post good neighbor policy, about the Monroe Doctrine, about this idea of we, the white Americans, go to Central America or South America and we take what we can and we try to run away as fast as possible without you know, doing anything that's all that beneficial for the people of those places. Which, again, it's not to say that, like, there aren't characters who care in the treasure of the Sierra Madre, but, like, there's a reason Humphrey Bogart, who is credited highest and his performance is the most remembered from this movie, is just the epitome of, like, grab-and-go, dine-and-dash in terms of his approach to being in Mexico. So we had two films to, to potentially replace here. One of them is missing the 1982 Costa Gavras movie, which is not, I, I don't want to call it docufiction, but like it definitely, it definitely is trying to work from the facts, the, the true story of this American who was in the wrong place at the wrong time during the coup in Chile. And, then found himself dead and found himself unable to be found by his family, by his wife and his father, um, both of whom have to become more and more jaded and more and more mistrustful of American government, American ideals, um, as they as they realize that those ideals are, you know, not real things. And on the other hand, we have the fictional story, um, again, almost magical in some ways, about an American, a true a true hero of the Massachusetts guy canon in the Mosquito Coast by Peter Weir from 1986. This guy who, at a time when Reagan was just invading Granada for no good reason, um decides to do his own somewhat spontaneous invasion of a place in Latin America uh, for his own self-aggrandizement. Um, it goes rather worse for him than it went for Reagan, but that's why it's the movies, man. We can only have some justice there. So, missing Mosquito Coast. I think both good options. I'm going to go with mosquito coast i think because of 
not that missing doesn't have the like <clears throat> they really believe it element but that mosquito coast is kind of built out of that in a way that sierra madre seems to be as well um so yeah this one was tough in that i think they both fit really well and it's not necessarily that like i'm more interested in one than the other i'm i'm interested in both but i think the I don't know how like obviously bad and corrupt it is and yet they believe it and you see it right there and maybe you understand it to some degree. I think that's what tipped me over. And just think I didn't even do Walker, another 1980s film, which I think kind of like, which kind of um, smushes these idea together. Have you seen Walker, the Alex Cox movie about the, the filibuster? Mm-hmm. Ed Harris plays William Walker, who was like, I'm the president of Nicaragua. Oh, I've heard of this, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, the movie itself is great. I've heard I of the Ed Harris part anyway. Yeah, it like it even I thought this is almost too on the nose. Like we have to try harder than this. So we'll <laughs> maybe um maybe I'll find a way to get Walker in there later. But it's it's a topic that there are there are more of these than you'd think. Um even even excluding your good neighbor policy movies, which we went through, but there there are more there are more movies about the United States and Latin America and the sort of uneasiness between them um, yeah. than, I think than I assumed. I think I find that uh, I think the connection is appealing in that um, both Mosquito Coast and Sierra Madre, it's. Oh, it's sort of how the doctrine seeps into the everyday person or like the individual and how that becomes valuable or valued. Um, And it's really hard to take off those blinders. So like, uh, yeah, I I I think I find that appealing too. that very particular connection. Again, I think missing is doing all this stuff just to a different degree, but that right. The systematic element is obviously so bad, but like, uh, that it creeps in and it's real hard to get rid of yeah i mean i didn't think about it until i said it but the the line between fred c dobbs and Allie fox is both straight and short all right so if you enjoyed this he said hopefully um, then you can go to our website which is subtitlespodcast.com at subtitlespodcast.com you can find First of all, back episodes for this. You can find Matt's part one uh, about things that neither one of us liked as much as we liked Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Um, these are all much better texts. <laughs> yeah, these are these are stronger texts than than Drake, Lana Del Rey, and Father John Misty. But I digress. Um, the other things you can find there, of course, are links to both of our blogs. You can find links to my letterbox, to his playlists. Um, on apps that we maybe don't mention anymore because capitalism. Um, We can't help it. And we'll see you next time.